Father, thank you so much for um, new mercies that you have given to us this morning. Thank you for giving us life and breath and calling. Thank you that you have called us as sons. And we pray now as your sons that as we open up your word and this revelation that you have given John and then now to uh, us through these seven churches, we pray, Father, that you would give us a greater vision of Jesus and that you would heal what is broken in us as individuals and in us as a church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of uh, my favorite books that I had the hardest time to get all the way through is The Brothers Karamazov. Everybody read that before? It's very thick. It's long. It's way too long. It's, one, it's by Dostoevsky, one of those Russian authors that people love to talk about, but it's, it's difficult to actually get all the way through one of his books, and I did it one summer right out of college. And in that book, there is a short story. Uh, he calls it a poem. It's, it's almost really a parable called The Grand Inquisitor. And in this short story, it takes place during the Spanish Inquisition, where the Catholic Church was rooting out what they seemed to be as uh, doctrinal impurity or sin in the church, and they were going and literally burning people at the stake uh, for their sin. And during the Spanish Inquisition, the story goes that Jesus Christ returns to earth during the Spanish Inquisition. And Christ has come back, and He is healing people uh, in, in the slums of this Spanish city. And He's performing miracles, and the, and the people recognize Him immediately. And they're adoring Him, they're flocking to Him, they're going to Him, looking for healing. And the church recognizes Him as well. And so the in, in, Inquisition finds Jesus, they arrest Him, they throw him in jail, and they threaten to burn him at the stake as well for starting an insurrection and getting in the way of the mission of the church. And the Grand Inquisitor, where the parable gets its name, is this 90-year-old churchman who comes to Jesus in his jail cell, and this is what he says to him. He says, is it you? You? He recognizes him almost immediately. He says, do not be answered. But be silent. After all, what could you say? I know to all what you would say. And you have no right to add to anything that you have already said once. And then he said, this is what he says to Jesus. He says, why have you come to interfere with us? Think about this. Leader of the church during the Spanish Inquisition has Jesus Christ returned in the flesh in his jail cell and he says, why have you, Jesus, come back to interfere with us? And the bulk of the story has to do with the Grand Inquisitor telling Jesus why Jesus' presence now in the church is getting in the way of the mission of the church. And that he has no business returning and getting in the way of their agenda. And as the story ends, the Grand Inquisitor tells Jesus that he's going to be burned at the stake and during this entire time, Jesus has said nothing. Jesus gets up, and he kisses the Grand Inquisitor on the cheek. And the story goes that this kiss, it says, burned. Burned on the Grand Inquisitor's cheek and burned in his heart so much that he lets Jesus go. 
when I read that story, it's about 15 years ago almost now, that burned in me too. And it burned in me because I began to ask this question. What would happen if Jesus returned to our churches today? What would that be like? First off, would we even recognize him? What would we expect? Would we expect him to look differently? Would we be like the people in Spain, able to recognize him immediately? Or would we not even be able to see him because we're looking for something completely different? But if we were able to recognize Jesus, what would it be like? Would we think that Jesus was getting in the way of the, our mission? Or perhaps a better question for us this morning is this. If Jesus were to return today to our church, to our churches here in Dallas, here in America, what would he think of us? What would he think of our churches? What would he commend? What would he see in our churches that he would say, you are doing well? Well done, good and faithful servants. But for us, probably the harder question this morning is what would he condemn? What would Jesus condemn in our churches that we have allowed to continue over centuries that has no business being in our communities, in our places of worship, in our theology, and the way that we live and act? This is the context for our passage this morning in Revelation. John's vision of this greater and grander Jesus Christ coming now to seven churches and saying, this is what I see in you. Now that you have been removed from my presence, my, my teaching here on earth now, as I've returned, this is what I see in you. This is what I commend. This is what I'm praising you for. And then he will say over and over and over again with each church, but this I have against you. I'm calling you out. Now these seven churches uh, we introduced last week, I'll read them to you. And really it's the whole point of the book of Revelation. Uh, Chad mentions this week one. The book of Revelation is a letter. It's an epistle. It has a specific context, a time and place. John receiving this vision right, on the island while well, he's in exile in Patmos, right? But it's actually to a specific group of people, seven churches. These are the seven. We, we learned this last week in chapter 1, verse 11. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches. Okay, why seven churches? It's an important question. Some people think, well, maybe John was the bishop, of these kind of seven churches. He was over all of these seven churches. I mean, maybe. Maybe. Or what are we supposed to do with these seven churches? Uh, some have said, well, really, all of this is one giant metaphor, and, and what's being written to these seven churches is actually a prophecy of what's going to exist in the capital C church over the entire church age. So each church and seven churches represents a different era of the church. Well, is that what it is? Or is John writing specifically just to these particular seven churches in this time and in this place? What are we to do with this as we read this ourselves this morning? Is it to a particular seven churches, or does it have something to say to us this morning? Well, the answer 
the answer like most, most of prophecy in the Bible and certainly of apocalyptic writing is yes. There was a specific time and place, a context that was very applicable to each one of these churches. But if you uh, remember or if you've ever heard, and I'm not going to, we're not, I'm pretty sure Chad's not going to do this either. We're not going to make much of numbers as we study the book of Re- People try, right? That there's some little revelation code, right? We've got to crack the code. But the number seven does have a lot of meaning to it. Completeness. Why seven churches? Because I believe John was saying something very specific, well, Jesus through John, very specific to these seven churches. But also in these seven churches, we will see our own story. But the reality is with each one of these stories of these churches, the number seven, it's complete, it's universal. In other words, it has something to say to not just us and our time and our place, but for all churches and all times and all places. That as the church universal, we're going to find ourselves in these churches this morning. So we don't have time to go through all seven churches, and so I just want to pick out three, and I've put them on your sheet this morning. We're going to look at the first church mentioned, Ephesus. We're going to look at the third church mission mentioned, Pergamum, and then we're going to look at the last church, Laodicea. And what I want you to see in these three churches, we're going to learn about ourselves. We're going to learn about the necessity of love, the church of Ephesus. We're going to learn about the danger of idolatry. That's the church in Pergamum. And then lastly, we're going to learn about the wretchedness of complacency. And that's the church in Laodicea. And in these three churches, we'll get a glimpse of the whole. But more importantly, we will get a glimpse, a piercing glimpse, in the depth of our own hearts, our own souls, our own sin. And we will see why our union with Christ, why upholding a greater vision of who He is that we began last week, is the only solution, the only path to genuine repentance. All right? So first, I want to look at the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, we're going to see the necessity of love. So if you remember last week, Jesus has come to John, this great vision of who he is, and now he is speaking to John, and this sets the tone for the rest of the book of Revelation. This is the introduction. This sets the tone. So immediately Jesus says this. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And if you were last week, you know Jesus himself tells John how to interpret that. The seven stars are the seven angels of of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the churches themselves. Right? So here is Jesus, Lord of the church, capital C church, and he says, this is what I want you to tell my church. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus begins by commending the church in Ephesus, and he will do this time and time again for each of the In fact, we will see really kind of a form given for each letter. It's the same, follows the same pattern. And, and first and foremost, what Jesus does is he commends the church, and in particular for you know, withstanding persecution, for remaining steadfast, 
right, for being faithful in the midst of a faithless culture. Now, did that have something to say particularly to Ephesus then? Well, absolutely. Ephesus was probably wise at first. Well, it's the most important of the seven churches. It was the gateway to the world. It was a uh, melting pot of culture. Right? Paul writes his letter to the church at Ephesus. It was an important place strategically for the mission of the church. But for us, in our time, in our place, especially now as our culture is changing before our very eyes, we are beginning to know something of persecution as well. So here is Jesus. He's commending Ephesus. In particular, how have they been um, pure during persecution? What's their doctrine? Their doctrine. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works are toil or patient endurance, uh, how you cannot bear with evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. In other words, they have upheld doctrine. They have uprooted uh, not just error, but heresy. And those who have been teaching a false gospel, they have kicked out of the church. They have remained doctrinally pure in the midst of persecution. So as good Presbyterians this morning, we should say, yeah, that sounds like us, doesn't it? Right? We are, we're proud of that, Right? We are proud of what we have accomplished in being able over many, many centuries to still remain confessional, right? Think how much has changed over the years and how much even the Presbyterian Church has changed. And some of you may know that history, you may not. But, right, we, we are remaining doctrinally pure. But as Jesus' custom will be in these letters, he continues. And this is what he says in verse 4. But this I have against you. He'll say that over and over and over again. But this I have against you. I pray, I'm praising you for remaining doctrinally pure, for being able to withstand persecution, for remaining faithful, but this I have against you. What do I have against you? You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now some of you this morning as you read that, and I can even hear it, it's almost an audible like, oh. And about a year ago, uh, I went on a silent retreat. I've been on two silent retreats. It's taken me two silent retreats to actually be silent. <laughs> uh, there's a group that just came back, a group that's about to leave. Uh, again, you'll hear more and more about these all the time in our church. It's something that has been an amazing way that we uh, commune with Jesus, especially as we almost remove all of the noise, all of the idols of our life, and spend a focused time with him. Well, a year ago, I went on a silent retreat, and as I was praying about what did the Lord want me to study uh, biblically during that time, uh, I began to really think that what the Lord was telling me was to study the book of Revelation. Now, if you know anything about me, you know that not, would not be my first choice. <laughs> Give me um, something a lot more clear. Give me Galatians or Ephesians or something like that. Give me the Psalms. That'd be great. But no, I, I really believed that that's where he was leading me. And so that first day of silence, reading what we just did last week, uh, Jesus' great vision, I'm just like, what, am I, what are you trying to tell me? And then I start reading the next day, the seven churches. And I start reading this one. And I, I want to tell you, man, I didn't get past the first one. I stopped right here in verse 4. And I realized that's what the Lord had to say to me. Paul, you have forgotten the love that you had at first. 
The idea of love is crucial. Crucial to who we are as sons of God. Crucial to who we are as being made in the image of God. Right? Bearing His love in the world around us. And I would argue with you this morning that love, love is the ultimate. It is the epitome. It is the picture of all goodness, of all virtue. And that statement right there actually is not my own. It's Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, in preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, he said, Love is the sum of all the virtue and duty that God requires of us, and therefore is the most essential thing. It's the sum of all virtue, love. That's what Edwards says. What does he mean by that? Well, he's preaching out of 1 Corinthians 13. Where Paul says, if I speak of tongues and men, of angels, if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers or understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And here in Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus, if I have all of the doctrinal purity in the world but I have not love, I have nothing. Now, what is the love that they lost? Well, we're not totally sure. Uh, some commentators think, well, maybe that love was the love of um, the Great Commission, right? The love of sharing their faith, of having that zeal and that fervor. Uh, some think, well, it's just love in general, that they didn't love one another, that they literally just did not love. And I would say it doesn't matter either way. The great failure of evangelism in our world today begins with a lack of love. That we don't love people who do not know Jesus. If we loved them, we would tell them, right? And the same thing goes with the way that we love one another in the church. Either way, there was a failure of love in the Ephesian church. So much so that here Jesus is in this revelation to John. And he's saying, you've forgotten the love that you had at first. You've forgotten the love you had at first. Verse 5, he goes on, he says, Remember therefore where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, the light that is shining from you as a church, I will snuff out. That's how important love is. That's how important love is. And you say, how, how could that be? Well, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? In the Gospels, think of the Gospel of Matthew about love. Right? Somebody comes up to Jesus, the Pharisees trying to trick him, and they say, What's the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God and all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love is the sum of all virtue. And if that's true, then I would say that really ultimately every sin that we've ever committed ultimately is a failure to love. A failure to love God first and foremost and a failure to love one another. The Ephesian church, doctrinally pure, standing for the faith in the midst of persecution but doing so without love. Does that describe us as a church this morning? Does that describe you as a member of the church, capital C? 
What would Jesus say to us if he returned today in the midst of our churches? What would he call us to? I think the Ephesian church teaches us that first he would call us to love. He would call us to love. Second, that's the necessity of love. Second, we'll look at the church of Pergamum. So we're going to, this is the third church mentioned, so we're going to skip. We'll go to verse 12, Revelation 2, verse 12. It's there on your sheet. We'll see the danger of idolatry. The danger of idolatry. Verse 12, Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So with each one of these uh, letters, Jesus is referencing some aspect of who he is in, in this great vision that we talked about last week. And if you remember, what's coming out of his mouth is the sharp two-edged sword, right? And Think of Hebrews talking about the Word of God being a two-edged sword, right? Piercing us through. That's what he's referencing to here, this sharp two-edged sword, the Word of God coming out of his mouth, verse 13. He says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Think about that. Talk about persecution. Well, it's one thing for the Ephesian church to withstand the persecution they're enduring, but hey, listen, Pergamum, I know where you live, and you literally live at the throne of Satan. And so well done. Well done that you are in the midst of all this satanic worship, and yet you are able to withstand, he's saying. Uh, you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so we don't know much about Antipas. Well, all we know is here in the book of Revelation, and we know that he was a martyr. So now we even have martyrdom mentioned. So this persecution is so great for the, the church at Pergamum that they are literally in the midst of satanic worship, and one of their own has been martyred. And so Jesus is commending them. He's saying, way to remain faithful. Way to remain faithful. I'm praising you for that. Uh, we don't know much about Pergamum. We know a little bit. Um, we know that in, in Pergamum, there was a lot of idol worship. In particular, there were temples to Zeus, uh, to Dionysus, to Athene. They even had uh, worship of Caesar, the emperor. Um, and so we know that the church there endured intense persecution because they did not play along. And, and it'd be one thing to be persecuted for not worshiping Zeus, but when you are in a culture that not only um, bows down to their emperor as their government, but also as a god, and you're not doing that, right? You're committing treason. You're not just refusing to participate in their religion, but it's treasonous. This is a very dangerous context for the church of Pergamon to be in, and Jesus is praising them for it, Okay? But verse 14, notice the pattern. But this I have against you. But this I have against you. You have some there who are teaching the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to be put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who, have hold, who, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right. What did any of that mean? What do you do with that? Well, th put yourself right there. Here's this church in the midst of great idolatry, trying to remain steadfast. One of their own has been martyred. Now, in the midst of that kind of persecution and that kind of idolatry, 
Jesus is saying, hey, listen, some of you have remained pure to the point of even death. But there are those among you who have allowed the culture of idol worship to seep into your church. There are some among you who are, are not remaining steadfast, that are succumbing to the pressure, the threat of persecution, the threat of martyrdom, that you are allowing idol worship to seep into your church. And the examples he give is Balaam. Now, you know the story of Balaam? It's one of those great kid stories. You're like, why do we teach this to our kids? Um, it's a great kid story because what happens to Balaam? God speaks to Balaam through what? Good, yeah. Some of you are trying to be politically right and say donkey, but you can say ass this morning. It's okay. Yeah, through his donkey, right? Through this donkey. Why? Because Balaam himself isn't listening to God. Now, Balaam was a pagan prophet, okay? But he, he still heard, God still spoke to him. He still spoke to him. Why? Because he was trying to protect his people. And as he comes to him, he's trying to get Balaam's attention, and Balaam uh, is not paying attention, does not see the angel trying to stop him in the road, and so God then speaks to Balaam through his donkey, and then eventually comes to him face to face. And Balaam realizes that he cannot, so Balak wants to curse the people of Israel, and Balaam won't do it. From talking to God through a donkey, Balaam says, no, I'm not going to say anything that God has not told me to say. So I will not curse Israel, at least not directly. So what does Balaam do? Later Numbers tells us that what he does, he doesn't directly curse Israel, but he tells Balak to allow the Moabite women to just throw themselves at the Israelite men. And what do you think happened? The Israelite men succumbed. They succumbed to these women, right, sexual immorality, and as they committed sexual immorality with these Moabite women, being joined together with them, all of that pagan culture, right, all of that idolatry began to seep into the camp of Israel, into the people of God. Idolatry, seeping into the people. That's the example that Jesus is giving here in Revelation 2. Listen, you've done, listen, you've done the same thing. You've allowed the culture around you to completely influence and infiltrate you in the way it's been done. Food sacrifice to idols and those who practice sexual immorality. I wonder what the idols of our church is today. What are the idols of our churches? What idols in the culture around us that we so easily will call out and name? These great American idols that exist, and how has it seeped into our church? And we don't have to go very far in Revelation to wonder if any of these have to do with us. Would you say that sex is an idol in the culture around us? Yes. Do you think that has infiltrated and influenced in us as part of the men in our church? Yes. Of course it has. Are we willing to uproot the idols that exist around us and to recognize that these idols are incredibly dangerous. They're incredibly dangerous and they impact us more than we realize they do. So verse 16, Jesus says this, Therefore repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Repent, Jesus says. Repent of the idols. And it's interesting 
is that Peter, in 2 Peter, references this exact same thing. Uh, you can just write this down. You don't have to turn there. But I want you to listen. Because the way that he references this exact same instance, Balaam, I think really uh, shows us how deep the idols go for us. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 14. 2 Peter 2, 14. Write it down. You can go there later. He says this about the church. He says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way. They've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, and a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs. Listen to that. These are water, an idol is like a waterless spring. All that it promises that we flock to to drink, and yet there's no water. Our mists driven by a storm, right? It's but a vapor. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those will live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Our idols, and this has been true of us, I mean, from the very beginning, promise freedom, but they completely enslave us. They hold us captive. We think that is the place of freedom, that is the place where we truly free, but we literally become addicts to our idols. We become enslaved by them. They completely hold us captive. And so here in the book of Revelation to the church of Pergamum, Jesus is saying, repent. 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 Repent against your idols. And then he says this in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So ultimately, how do we withstand our idols? We need to know who we are and really whose we are. That this is not all that there is. That the idols before us that promise us freedom here on this earth that tempt our flesh have nothing to compare to Jesus Christ who is Lord of Lords who has our names written in heaven. And that is our destination. We'll talk more about that in a second. Last thing, and then we'll be done. We'll go to our tables. To the church of Laodicea. The wretchedness of complacency. We'll skip all the way to chapter 3, the very end. The last church mentioned is Laodicea. Revelation 3.14, Jesus says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, and you are poor and blind and naked, and I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I want you to notice something to the church of Laodicea. He skips a part that he's mentioned for all the other churches. What did he skip? Praise. He doesn't have commendation for them. 
He doesn't have praise for them. No, he launches straight into his condemnation. And what does he condemn? You're complacent. You are lukewarm. And again, we don't know a ton about Laodicea, but this we do know, that we have reason to believe that they were very far from water, and so they had learned by their engineering strengths to pipe water in, but in that kind of climate, how do you think that water came out as it had been piped over the desert? Tepid and lukewarm. It wasn't very drinkable. And so here Jesus is using a metaphor that should be common to them. You're like lukewarm water, worthless to drink. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It reminds me of 2 Timothy 3. Timothy tells us that in the last days there will be people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And listen to what he says. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Brothers, does that describe us as a church this morning? Does that describe you? Does it describe me? Are we complacent? Do we have the appearance of godliness in all that we do and say and act on the outside, but inward? We're, we're completely denying the power of God, and we have grown stale. We have grown lukewarm. We've grown complacent. How does somebody become complacent? I think Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us in Revelation. What does he say? Verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. How does somebody become complacent? Well, it's when you have no need for the gospel at all. And yes, maybe that comes through the way of money, but it might not be money. It could be a million other things. Your successes, your accomplishments, all that you have built for yourself. If you look at all that you have and you look at God and you say, listen, I've been able to be prosperous and I don't need you anymore. Have we grown complacent? Jesus says to you, to the church at Laodicea, he says, you're lukewarm, you're complacent. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. All right, so what do we do with all of this? And how do we think about this as you talk at your tables? The very end, the very end of chapter 3, verse 19, is a call to repentance. And with each one of these, actually in all seven letters, there's a similar call. And the call is this, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's the same thing that Jesus said in his parables. He who has an ear, let him hear. How will you have an ear in order to hear what Jesus is saying? The Holy Spirit has to give it to you. Are you able to hear the voice of Jesus Christ calling to you this morning, calling you to repent? But this is what he says, and it's an offer of, not, not a warning, it's, an, it's really a promise. This is what he says. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Genuine repentance is not just turning from these things. It's turning to Jesus Christ and being in true fellowship and communion with Him and all His greatness and all His grandeur, this great vision of who He is. And to know that the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is standing at the door of your heart and He is knocking. 
He's calling out to you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is giving you an ear to hear his word. And he's calling you, yes, to repent, but more than that, what he's saying, he's saying, return to me. Come back to me. Come back and dine with me. Taste and see that I am good. Much better than any idol. Right? With much more passion than any complacency that you could ever know. Come into fellowship of love with me. Let me pray for you. Send you to your tables. Father, thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Thank you for your son Jesus Christ and the way that he spoke to John and then to these seven churches and now to us 2,000 years later. Um, Father, we, we pray. Give us an ear to hear you this morning as we work through these questions together at our tables that we would not only just see ourselves in our sin, but more than that, we would see you, Jesus Christ, that you and your grace and your mercy are standing at the door, that you are knocking down the walls of our heart, and that you are inviting us once again to return to you and to fellowship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.